0: Hi, this is James Russo, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of The Corling Solution, where we look to empower you through awareness and actionable insights. On this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Mike Milia. Mike was a pioneer in the expansion of the natural food movement in the late 70s. He transitioned into transformational personal development seminar businesses in the 1980s and then got involved with Legal Shield in the late 1990s. Today he is a part of the prestigious Legal Shield Millionaire Club and sits on their influential Platinum Council. During our discussion, Mike shares his views on social justice, our responsibility as citizens, and his experiences from owning multiple small businesses. So sit back, buckle up as we're about to link up with Mike Millia. I'm here with Mr. Mike Millia on the CoreLink Solution. Mike, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey James, thank you. Appreciate
0: it. We are here in Montego Bay, Jamaica, enjoying it. How are you been enjoying it so far? Yo man, yes, I'm having a great time. Indeed, you been out surfing? Uh, no, no, no. On the beach?
1: I've been on the beach. I've been hanging out, and uh, actually, it's it. For a vacation, I've been a lot of, I've been actually working an awful lot.
0: I know. I know. I think a couple yeah. people have. Yeah. Well, but most but You people, have. Most people have not. But you have. I have.
1: You've been I in have. this room.
0: I've been in this room a <laughs> lot. Yeah, it's good, though. It's really been good. So um, thanks for taking some time. Well, it's my pleasure. So I've known Mike now for, uh, for about four years. About four I, years. I came yeah. in 14. And uh, Mike's been a very consistent person uh, in the company, uh, both on uh, from a leadership perspective, focused on issues of of social justice and beyond. But I want to let Mike introduce himself. Mike, why don't you talk about it? Sure.
1: Well, you know, the introduction is, uh, I started out with this company back in uh, 1998. So this summer, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary with the company. We have a big event down in Cocoa Beach, over in Cocoa Beach from here. And, um, you know, when I'll tell you, in terms of legal shield and such, when I first got involved in the company, I was very skeptical about the whole idea of, how to, you know, bring in legal services to the people, make it mm. affordable, first of all. And secondly, I mean, I really, I the thing I believed about the legal system and the justice system was that it was totally broken. Mm. That's what I thought about. And I thought, you know, I I got in for the money because I really needed to have money. My my kids were at college age. I had a son in college, I had two daughters lined up to go. And I you know I didn't realize how expensive it was until sure. my kids started going. Like wow. well, it was way different than when I was college age. And so when I look at this company, and I got the idea. What attracted me was people were making money. When I, I liked the idea, but I really thought, you know, there's no way they're going to they're going to fix their justice system. Right. And over time, not overnight, but over time, I've really become more of a crusader for this company in terms of I really think that we, as a as a now not just as a company, but as a social impact, hmm. have the ability to. Um, to do that you know and and you've you've been working with Jeff Bell our CEO and I've spoken to him many times just behind the scenes and stuff about that because there's so much you know in the last few years we've seen so much stuff go on so now I think I like I stay with the company I stay with the company anyway because the work I get to do is lots of fun and everything I get to travel around and talk about our opportunity and train people on how to be more successful in their lives but I really am um and I'm I'm happy that this is what we're doing this right now because I have a real strong commitment to social justice and especially in the light of um you know I think we just have to be honest with ourselves as a nation and as a people that that equality is not in effect mm-hmm. and that therefore what we have is an inequality and how are we going to really solve that and and you know what I've been aware of for a long time is the greatest resource that we're wasting as a, as a nation is our young people, mm. you know, and then particularly our young people of color and Latinos and stuff like that because the incarceration levels are ridiculous. Right. And, you know, we know that, you mm-hmm. know that. Absolutely. You know, I was, re- I was saying to you about the... Uh, Michelle, Michelle Alexander's book, *The New Jim Crow*. Mm-hmm. She, she, you know, she uh, documents it and she goes all, all, all numbers and it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, I mean, I, I, I grew up, you know, in the '60s, and so I've seen the evolution of it. And it, you know, I hate to say it, but it just hasn't been pretty.
0: Right, right. The uh, the, the point around helping our young people, you know, what, what, you're in New York now.
1: I'm in New York mostly. Mostly
0: in Florida as well.
1: Florida and California, those are my... such days. a tough
0: life like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, when it gets cold, you find me in Florida. when the weather's nice, I'll be either in New York or California. three
0: great places to
1: but i got I got four grandkids in New York, so that's why i I spent a lot on two I got two kids in New York and two kids in California uh-huh. and then my my mom and dad had retired to Florida, right, so that's what got me down there. They've passed since, but um you know yeah, right. so.
0: With all your experience in this space and, you know, when you think about our young people and to your point, you know, uh, uh, more for our young people, what are some of the things that come to mind that we we could be doing for our young people? Because I think a lot of times when people think of social justice, I think we all have it. Uh, When we think social justice, we think of the last news clip. I think yeah, we, we, it's yeah. just hard not to, right? It's hard not to. We think of the last series of clips, right? right? No, it's true. Um, and it's just hard not to, and it's hard not to. Then it's 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 harder than to turn to the next action thought of what we should be doing versus overthinking about the last news mm-hmm. clip or series of clips, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a it it really is when you look at it. It's a huge. Endeavor. Right. You know, I mean, there's so much to do. You know, I was telling you earlier that my former wife works, had worked in the prison systems at at Rikers as an artist in residence, teaching kids to write about stuff and do plays and such. You know, and that's been a great, you know, and she continues to do that um, these days, not so much at Rikers anymore, but in general with kids at risk and stuff. But so there's a lot of little. There's, I don't think there's any like big like mm-hmm. like a major big problem to solve. There's, it's a big problem to solve, right. but it needs to be you know approached at the local level right. and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it takes individual people who really have the value system and say, you know, how can we help the young people? Right. You know, um, and that's I mean, and it, you know, like I don't pretend to to know that the the complete answer to that right. at all. Right. You know, I do know that a lot of it is educating and. I, mean, I think that that, as adults, I think every adult really has a responsibility to educate themselves because the education's not in the it's not in the system right you know? it doesn't you know you don't come in the system and really truly learn the history of you know the United States of America right the history is biased it's you know whatever it is i mean it's just not there mm-hmm. and so the more educated we are as adults and i see this in tremendous you see this through social media the polarization that exists i mean it's right. it's almost sad because people become entrenched in their positions right. as opposed to communicative in their positions right and and so we you know so there's so much change that needs to happen the good news i really do believe is on a among the young people, you know, the younger people, I see it in them. I've got, mm-hmm. My youngest is, no, is 32 now, so she's, not, so she's sort of moving out of right. that young age and stuff. But, you know, she's a filmmaker. She sees the injustices that goes on. She's very sensitive to it. My older daughter is 38 or 39. Um, she's an immigration attorney. Right. So, you know, 95% of her clients mm-hmm. are Latinos who, are, who have immigration right. situations and stuff. And she's, I mean, she's got the heart of a, you know, she really does have heart that it, it takes you to do that. Because I ask, her, I mean, you know, half, half of her clients are having really, really tough times. Mm-hmm. She's got two little boys at home. So she's there with her clients during the day who are, who she's helping so much. And yet she has, you know, and then she has little kids at home. So she's got to be a mom to them, but also be there for her clients. Right. And not take all the negativity that she sees there right. and bring it home at the same time take you know have hope for those folks and that kind of stuff so right. you know there's there's the the battles so to speak are need to be fought on all different kinds of levels yeah. you know here in legal shield we do you know we do a lot i think with it uh, what you know one of the things you probably have discussed before is i knew um you know, reaching into the Spanish market, to the Latino market, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're just launching. I mean, we have tried it before, but obviously right now there's a, a major, major yes. relaunch of that. And, yes. you know, and I, I can tell we're serious about it, which yes. is great, you know.
0: Yeah. You know, something you mentioned, you said, it's funny you said, you know, you don't have the answers. But one, one of the things you mentioned I think is a big one because you may even take it for granted. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, uh, Mike, is that you're uh, very even keel. Right. You spend a lot, you know, one of the things I've always loved is that you're, you're very passionate <laughs> about things you talk about, but you're also very factual and will listen. Right. Um, and you come ready to learn and understand so you can continue to kind of evolve your understanding of a, of a particular topic. So, you know, and a lot of times that's the problem that folks don't want to take the time to get more spun up on a topic before they just shoot out mm. at other folks, right? And we're talking past each other and right. not having a dialogue. We're not listening. Especially on, in social, social channels, right? I mean, people just firing back and forth at each other. Yeah. And so we're not having a conversation, right? We're just shooting right. at each other, right. right? And so even what you just said over the last three or four minutes, right, some of the things you mentioned about uh, the, the, the new Jim Crow book and things like that, but having a kind of an understanding of what's going on, what things do you do to help you keep yourself spun up on what's going on in the environment? Because even that could help the folks listening to this program or watching this program, right? I think it's the so we're not desensitized to what's going on, so we're all gonna be better citizens. What do you do to keep yourself up to date?
1: Um you know, I I I mean I sometimes I, I like I don't feel like I should watch the news or listen to the news and stuff, but I keep myself informed because, you know. I think, as a citizen, as a citizen, you know, here's—I mean, here's something I noticed a long time ago: is that the society has moved citizens to become, push them towards becoming consumers, mm. and the consumer-driven society is very different than a citizen-driven society. Mm-hmm. A citizen cares about, you know, the the how we are as citizens, how we show up with each other, and everything else. Right. Consumers are. You know they're conditioned to consume and consume right. and and that society is given that you know we talked a little bit about the media earlier you know one of the things that's crazy with the media is there's there's almost no there's almost no forms of media that that don't come out with their biases and they're just and, and and so one of the things i've learned to do over time is to really ask the bias i'll give you an example of something It's a good question when I read, when I get a book to read, particularly not a not a novel or something like that, but a book of nonfiction, and then, and I, I guess this goes back to the early '80s when I was working with this guy Robert Fritz, and Robert Robert was one of those folks. He was a, I was a seminar industry business, and he really I really learned from him how to question the assumptions that we build things on. Gotcha. And so when I read, when I get a book now, and I'll, I'll open up to the preface mm-hmm. on the introduction, and I'll read those first few chapters or the first part of the book, and I'll ask myself, and I'll look as I'm reading it for the biases that that author is putting out. Gotcha. If they exist. They may or may not exist. Right. May, like like journalism today. I mean, journalism is supposed to like report the... The facts, right. But so it's it's so biased, and so I think one of the things I do is I always look for the bias for the behind bias. something. Yes. And I, once I spy the bias, and I see the bias. I can still take the information in, recognizing that there's, there's what the biases the bias. are. Yes. Yeah. Got you it. Know, some some wow. are, some are more biased than others. Some are more obviously biased than others. But some you know skirt through, not looking biased, but they still have a bias. Mm-hmm. And, and and then there are actually real, a, a few real journalists left. Right. <laughs> Not too many.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's so funny because the, the, the whole premise of one of the new uh, buzzwords lately, unconscious bias, is a big deal.
1: It's unconscious big deal. bias is, is a tremendous deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, when, I mean, like, I, 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 like I've, I learned about it. You know, when I, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island and stuff, moved to the city as an adult. And it wasn't until I moved to New York City that I began to sort of explore my own unconscious biases. Mm-hmm. And once I began to see them, it really sort of opened up a, a new vista to me in terms of being able to, to listen to people better, mm-hmm. to hear what they were saying, right. to see people more accurately, you know, because because even with unconscious biases, and we all have them, and, you know, so we I think it's important that we get to know them so that we... And we're... we're now, this is something, again, I learned from this guy, Robert Fritz, who I worked with for about six, seven years in the, in the 80s. And, um, and Robert said this thing. He taught that we, you know, I used to lead seminars that he had designed. Right. And one of the seminars we used to do was imagine, like, I w- we would do, like, imagine um, you're the person across from you. We'd have mm-hmm. two people sitting across. Imagine the person you're sitting next, you know, across from is your best friend. Right. How do you feel? Imagine that to your brother, how do you feel? Imagine that to your enemy, how do you feel? Right. Imagine this. And, it, and we would give different definitions. And here was the, the, the uh, punchline was, according to the different definitions, which we were making up, right. feeding to you, mm-hmm. you had different emotional responses. Gotcha. And that was an interesting fact of when, you know, I, I was leading the seminar, but I also experienced that and understood that. So we walk down the street and we and give definition to everything we see. Gotcha. And that's unconscious. You know, you're talking about unconscious. That's yes. mm-hmm. just, it's just that voice exactly. going on. And now how we interpret that, you know, Matt, it, it depends. You exactly. know, And so it's an interesting factor, really. Exactly. And so, I, you know, I, what I've worked on personally is freeing myself from those biases as much as I can. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, not a, it's not a job you do once. It's an ongoing thing ongoing. because yeah. it keeps, you know, keep form, it keeps formulating around whatever right. you believe.
0: Well, and, you know, and, and I, could be, I could be making a leap here. I think one of the things that helps you out a lot and, I, and, and those you uh, lead, just because I know your leadership style, is the personal leadership development. You invest oh, a lot in yourself, right?
1: I think it's, um, I mean, I, you know, I believe that's so important and, and ongoing. Mm-hmm. And here's the key, because, you know, like I, I think it was my friend Frank O'Coin said this one time. He said, you know. If you find yourself thinking, oh, I heard that already, oh, I know that already, oh, I've seen that already, you know, that's that's a sign of a closed mind. Right. You're not really opening up to continue to learn. Right. And that continue to stay open, you know, I, I think it's, it's somewhat of a challenge, but after you get good at it, you, you'll you tend to move in that direction. Right. You know, and, and I think that's important. Um and, but leadership development, you know, an ongoing leadership development. I mean, I have I have my favorite authors, my favorite teachers, and stuff. But you know, right here with um, you know, yesterday with among the leaders in our company, we sat with a guy named Keith Ferrazzi, right. and he led us through a uh, through his teaching and his coaching methodology, which I just always find that kind of stuff so fascinating mm-hmm. because, you know, the tendency is to become complacent or become satisfied with where you're at. Right. But the real challenge is to continue to raise the bar and continue and continue to open your mind up and stuff and say, how can we make things better? Because I believe this. I mean, there's an old uh, line of the Bob Dylan song, he's not busy being born, he's busy dying. Yes. And that line, you know, when you start thinking you know everything or you're not reaching out for new stuff, right. you're on the other, other way. And, I'm, you know, I'm getting older in life and stuff. And so I like hanging out with the younger people because... Yes. <laughs> I believe they keep me younger, That's right. and I keep my perspective open. And I, and I like hanging out with my kids and now with my grandkids because mm-hmm. they keep you,
0: you know, on your toes, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So from a personal uh, development perspective, three favorite books. I'm curious. I, have, You know, i got
1: a lot of favorite books. I know. Um,
0: but if somebody were coming to you... You know, or you talking? If I was teaching,
1: if I was teaching somebody brand new, they would be different than if um, I was talking to somebody that was like, you know, someone said, "Hey, what's you know, what's some book you've read that you know is on the edges and stuff like that?" But like the the fun, the old the old sort of standbys, like how to win friends and influence people, with Dale Mm -hmm. Carnegie, you know, which which really boils down. And if you, and again, this is so interesting because I was talking about the introductions. He says it right in the introduction. Right. He says, a boy, and he might not use these words, but he uses these two words, genuine interest. Hmm. He's cultivating a genuine interest in people. And that means that you're not like just when you see somebody, you're not just making like, oh, this is this person and just making your assumptions about them. Right. You develop a genuine interest in them. Gotcha. So that one, then... Imagine, I think, The Power of Thinking Big or The Magic of Thinking Big, one of those ones by, uh, I think a guy's name, Arthur Schwartz. And these are like old ones, right? And then uh, sort of like more modern, and this is a a woman named Jen Sincero uh, wrote a a book called um, You're a Badass. Hmm. And she wrote a second book, which was you a Badass at Making Money, which was her prosperity book, so to speak. But she really, like, you know, she found herself being a person that just couldn't subscribe to more traditional methodologies of books. But, right. You know, I mean, I will tell you that uh, when it comes to books, I've read a lot. Right. You know, I mean, I'm in, and I draw from everywhere. Like, I was um, doing a, a talk for our, for our TV program today, our our um, legal show program and uh, and a guy i called it was an, uh, Emmett Fox and Emmett Fox was a Christian metaphysician mm-hmm. that lived that taught and lived in the 40s and the 50s he's british came to the us and traveled around here and i came across his books i don't know back in the early 80s and and he became like he he was a great storyteller so he used was, was great examples mm-hmm. so he was a, a person and through him i learned about Florence Shin. and you know and i don't particularly have the same um, beliefs that those folks have from a spiritual point of view but the principles they're talking about are applicable across the board you know and then like later on like one of the books I read I forget the name of the, the author of this book but uh, free was' called free play mm-hmm. and it's the uh, subtitle is the art of improvisation in life and the arts that's gotcha. right and it's interesting because improvisation we all improvise. Now, most of us think about improv improvis- improvisation as jazz exactly. or you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the you know what the most common form of improvisation is? What's that? Speaking. Because mm-hmm. you don't know what you I mean you don't know what you're gonna say to me two minutes from now. Right. You're gonna improvise it. Right. And so that's what we do. So dialogue so is improvisation. Of, yeah. yeah. Right. So that book really blew my mind in that way because it opened up stuff. And then, like a guy named Stuart Wilde wrote a bunch of books. He was also another British guy but he was very irreverent mm. But he taught spiritual principles. Mm-hmm. So his prosperity book was one that really was powerful to me. He wrote a book called the trick to money is having some. Mm. And the idea was how you feel about money is more important than any other aspect of it. If you, if you hate money, you're going to keep it away from you. Mm-hmm. If money's a pain in the neck, you're going to find a way of avoiding it. Mm. But if you embrace it, and you open up to the the flow of it and why it's important, and money becomes easier. Gotcha. And up until, up until I read that book, money was always elusive to me. Hmm. It was always something that I made enough of it, but it never had like a free flow of it. Right. And after I read that, things started to shift in my life. And I probably read it, she's 25 years ago now. Is that right? Yeah. The hmm. beginning of uh, things changing <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from good. a financial point of gotcha. view. <laughs>
0: Interesting. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. So, th- so if you, I mean, because you've had now a tremendously successful career. So if you go back and were able to give your 25-year-old self a couple pieces of advice, what would, what would they be?
1: Um, it's, it's an interesting one because when I was, like, the, the number one piece of advice would be is really appreciate what you've built so far. Mm. And I I was at at a young age, um, I was a very successful business person. Mm -hmm. And and what happened was I I got married at age 23, I think, maybe 24. And I had my first kid about a year later. And when my first kid, up until that point in time, it's going to be hard to believe, I was sort of a free-spirited hippie. (laughs) <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. It, but I traveled around the country. I hiked the mountains out west. I hitchhiked. I rode freight trains. There's all kinds of stuff like that. But still at a, still a relatively young age, I found myself um, having a kid on the way. Right. And with a kid on the way, I thought, man, you know, what am I going to do? And I, um, like a lot of people, I mean, I, I've never I, – I, here's the way I say it. Is I'm, I'm good – at um, following instructions, but I'm not good at taking orders. Mm. And I knew that about myself then, so I was looking for a way to find my own way in life, and I wound up starting a natural food business on the North Shore of Long Island, mm. in Glen Cove, Long Island. Now, why natural foods? And, well, I, I, Because I had gotten attracted to, I had changed my dietary okay. practices at a young age. Okay. At a young age, I'd read a couple of different books that um, basically said the uh, modern American diet is an experiment. Mm. And that and that experiment is it's a we're moving away from a natural way of eating to more of a processed food way of eating. And and that's and, and the the premise there was that was a cause of cause a lot of the disease that was going on. God. And so I started eating a more holistic diet and more whole grains and vegetables. Um, bop, bada, bop. And so when I looked for something to do that was something I knew about mm-hmm. and it, but it was something that really hadn't hit the mainstream Point yet. Right. We were but what but I knew it was coming mm-hmm. So like in 76. I started this business at the time the natural food industry the health food industry was a 1 billion dollar a year in uh, business every year for the next five years it doubled. Wow. And so we were in the right place at the right time, this and that. Today, that store, it's called Rising Tide Natural Foods, is 42 years old. Gotcha. So it's still there. You know, I left after about six years because in the way I look at it now is that in the beginning, I was a visionary. Right. And then in five years, once we were successful, I was a glorified grocery clerk. Gotcha. You know, so I was filling orders, and you know, <laughs> it's like, and I thought, man, now I was pushing 30. Right. i like if I stick with this I'm stuck with this right. and so I, I decided to move, I had the best of myself and moved on but but the advice I would have given my younger self right then mm-hmm. going back to your question was I let that business go I would have kept ownership of it mm-hmm. you know I would have just actually kept a piece of it you know just because it was destined for I, I knew it was destined for it I was going through a divorce at the time right. and I did, and, and here's the, ironically in that divorce I didn't have good legal counsel Gotcha. Today, I represent good legal counsel. Right. You know, then I didn't have it, so I think I would have um, given my my younger self uh, advice to like, you know, get use use more resources. Mm-hmm. You know, don't make um, rash decisions and stuff. What I thought of that back then, I was thirty years old when I invested the myself there, and I and I literally basically gave it away. It was um, I thought, well, I built one million dollar business. Yes. I'll just build another one. Right. But that didn't come to pass for another 15 years. Wow. You know? Wow. So for 15 years, I was up and down struggling. Right. When I really had a foundation I could have built on. Right. But, you know, but that's, but I, I, I always think about, you know, if not that, then, not, then I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't be where I am today. Exactly.
0: So yeah.
1: I don't have any regrets about it. Like right.
0: bit, you know? But still, if you could give yourself that advice, it's great advice. Yeah. yeah. So now you've done an entrepreneur track how many times over? building
1: businesses um how
0: many businesses for,
1: now? well three three businesses and then um so i, I ran i built the natural food business and then i when i left that i worked in outside sales for a little bit and then i went into the seminar industry mm-hmm. i worked for a seminar company for this gentleman robert fritz and his company for six years in the 80s mm-hmm. and it's, it's literally the only time i've gotten a right.
0: what
1: do they call it a W2.
0: Was
1: like, that was the That's only time funny. I got That's that. You, you yeah. sound
0: like, yeah, you sound like Frank O'Coyne when you say that. So. Well,
1: it's the only time I got it. I mean, I had five years that I actually had someone else paying me.
0: Right. He said, what is, what you is, you is that thing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a, Frank O'Coyne one day said to me, uh, he said something. His kid came home from uh, school or something one day and uh, uh, asked, said something, what, what is it? Uh, something about a job. And Frank said to his child, who told you that one? We <laughs> <you? laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, that's pretty funny because I have, I have um, my oldest son's an entrepreneur. He's a software engineer, but he's 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 interesting because he's a coder and and like most software engineers are like you know they can't talk to people. Right. But this kid goes drives the country and does keynote speeches on different things and talks and stuff. Right. And so he can talk to people. Right. So he lives in New York City and he's he does well for himself. And then um, my my younger son is. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's entrepreneurial. And then my daughter, who's an uh, immigration attorney, right. she's really a social activist at heart, how she wound up doing that. And my youngest daughter is a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. She works for a company, but she's an artist, really, we come down to it. Right. So. I've always had the entrepreneurial, after I left the seminar in business, I started my own seminar company, uh-huh. and then I got involved in the network marketing industry, which, you know, and I believe that this particular company, it's an interesting, because it's a, it's a truly entrepreneurial company, because you both, you own your own business within a business, within a company, but like the way I say, there's a gentleman, another great book is uh, The E-Myth by... Uh, Michael yes. Gerber, mm-hmm. which is about entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and the E myth very simply means that uh, most people who start businesses, most small, small business people, think of themselves as entrepreneurs, but they but um, Gerber calls them a technician who had an entrepreneurial seizure. Mm. They started the business, but they're not really prepared to be a business person. Right. Well, I wasn't always that way either, but I learned it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in our business, like if if I'm if I'm marketing a Legal Shield membership, mm-hmm. I'm working in my business. But if I'm signing somebody up as an associate in the business, I'm working on my business. Right, right. And Gerber would say, you know, entrepreneurs understand the difference between working in your business and on your business. Right. So if you and I started a coffee shop, we might be working in the business. But if we if we design that to open up a chain of coffee shops, we would work on our business. Right. How That's do right. we, you know, so mm-hmm. and so there's a big difference right there. Mm-hmm. Which, once I learned that difference, you know, I mean. This company, Legal Shield,
0: passes that entrepreneurial. Yeah, and that's test. a meaningful um, observation. Oh, really. uh, it
1: really is. I mean, yeah. I mean, Michael Gerber was that. Michael Gerber, mm-hmm. he's one of the a great, a great speaker and a great teacher. Mm-hmm. He's, and here's what he says: one of the things that I learned from him, or I got from him, I knew this question already, but he he would ask people, "What's the most important question you can ask?" Mm-hmm. And they would wait for a while. He goes, oh, "I'm going to tell you one of this now. It's, what do I want? Mm-hmm. What do I want?'" And it's so interesting because most of us are not, we're conditioned to ask ask other questions like what appears to be possible. Right. Given what's possible, what do I want? Mm. And the question of like, regardless, if anything were possible, what do I want? Leads you in a whole different direction. Right. You know? Right. And most of the educational system is not designed for entrepreneurialism. It's really designed to
0: fit in. Correct. You know? Correct. Correct.
1: And unfortunately, you know, not everyone fits in.
0: What, what, what other things, when you think about uh, the three to three four businesses you've been through, um, are some of the things that have been the, the, le- the, the biggest lessons learned that uh, you would pass on to people? So one, I think that's a great observation in the business or on the business. Um, any other things that come to mind that have been sort of the, the lessons learned? For example, given the three or four you've been through, when you think about new business opportunities that are presented to you, what are some of the lenses you evaluate them through? New business opportunities.
1: Well, no, I think one of the recognitions is that life changes. Mm -hmm. Things are changing and things are changing fast. You know, we've seen the changes go on. You know, I'm a little older than you, but the changes I've seen in my lifetime have been immense. Mm -hmm. So my first business was a brick and mortar business. You know, I found an old storefront that had been an Italian market and the the guy had passed away and nobody in his family could run it. So all the refrigeration was in there. All the shelving was in there. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so way back, I mean, my first business was a Brooklyn... you know we we, we found a, we found a store, and right. I started that first one i mean this is probably like I started that on like on a five thousand dollar investment okay, you know within two years we were hitting a hundred grand a year wow and um and I went back to visit la- just last week. I was in New York, and I was visiting my old buddy Jerry, who runs a store now he, he's a, he was my high school track buddy mm-hmm. he was a, we, we used to run out a mile relay together, and then he was also um all state high jump. He jumped, he was five, eight and he jumped six, seven.
0: Okay. Wow.
1: Now he's about six foot. and he, I don't think he can jump six, seven, anymore. but, uh, but he, but he still runs that business. And when we started it, you know, on, on a $5,000 investment. Now you could do that then. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do that today. Right now today I would never, I mean, you know, like one of my sons is in California and he's going through a couple of different changes. And I said, well, what are you going to do next? And mm-hmm. he's, um, He's actually grown marijuana for a living out there for a few years. And he said, Well, I might go back to growing, or I might open a dispensary, or I might open, he lives in Santa Rosa, a New York style deli. Mm. And I heard those three things and I thought, well a New York style deli, that's real work. You know, I didn't advise him against anything, but but I like in today's world, I wouldn't go with the brick and mortar. I just wouldn't do it. You know? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I mean it's I I mean I don't like I like what I, what we do right now because we've got the strength of a multi million dollar company behind us. But all we do is we have a very you know limited scope of what we have to do. Right. Is train is, is really bring new people in and train them. I mean right. it's really and it's, so so that keeps a very streamlined business. Uh-huh. But you know as far as business goes, I I mean this goes way way back. I still believe this is um keep especially if you're starting up something, keep your overhead as low as possible for as long as possible, mm-hmm. you know, and, and don't add more expenses on until they're absolutely called for. And the funding is, is you're starting to generate the funding that can, right. that can grow it. Absolutely. You know, unless you've, unless you've got something like a lot of, obviously my son, Luke you now is an entrepreneur. He's a, he's a software engineer. And in the businesses he's been in, they've taken in investment money mm-hmm. in different times. His current one. He hasn't, he really hasn't done that. He's, he's actually sort of changed his model up so he's not sacrificing ownership, but you know, everything, everything has its, um, its potentials and its capabilities, yes, you know, absolutely. and mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I like the network marketing industry because you can get involved in a low startup and it's not a high risk, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know? If you go brick and mortar today, it's still re- there's still places for it. Right. Like I was just in New York and I was amazed at how many how many open uh, storefronts there were because, you know, like in New York, you know, like in the city, restaurants do great. Right. But you but you gotta be good at it. Right. You know, and, mm-hmm. and to me that's all high risk stuff. And I you know, like I stay away from it, but um but some, you know, but some people that's the right thing for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I mean so i don't I mean I don't know about it like in evaluating businesses, you know some of the business models we've seen come into existence you know like like Netflix and you know those you know like Uber and things like that they're they're totally revolutionary right but now they're becoming more of a standard right you know standard exactly you know right. you know my son was an early adapted to the internet, and um you know but now like now I even see like his. Even though he was an early adapter, like he sort of hit that curve where, you know, he's not he's not on the on the Mm
0: -hmm. cutting edge anymore. Plateauing out.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I don't know what that you know. Will there be another one? I think that I think energy energy is going to be a big Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. I think we I think we haven't seen some of the revolutions in in generating energy that we might see. Right. You know, like. I got them. I mean, there's a crazy theory, but it's not that crazy because I read a lot of science fiction right. in my younger days. But um, electromagnetic electromagnetic energy. Mm-hmm. Some way there's going to be a way of tapping into that, and when we can tap into it, it's an energy source that we've never we're not tapping into at all right, right now. Right. I mean electricity. Electricity is amazing, right? None of us really understand electricity. Exactly. I mean, yet everything around us right here is empowered by it. Right. We don't understand it. Right. But it's but we're we're harnessing it
0: exactly exactly <laughs> you know? every time those companies pop up selling it you go how is that possible we don't know right right exactly yeah. but we don't like it <laughs>
1: yeah. and things will change I mean that's the one the one thing we know is things will change I think I think one of the greatest I mean some of the greatest challenges that face humanity is things like the the net effect of pollution and stuff like that mm-hmm. and some of the greatest business opportunities will be among the people that solve those problems right. And now, sometimes, and the caveat there is if they're solvable, right. you know. I exactly. mean, I, so, I sure hope they are, because exactly. I got grandkids. <laughs> exactly.
0: exactly. That and uh, global warming, right?
1: Yeah, well, they're related. Right? Yeah, I mean, they're they related. are exactly, yeah. exactly. They're formed. They're both forms of pollution. Every right? time we,
0: we see this, uh, what's his name? Was it Dan Quell? Gore. Gore. Yeah, every time.
1: And Gore and Quail, I guess, you know. Yeah, I get them mixed <laughs> up.
0: Yeah, it's Gore, it's Gore. yeah. i get Gore going, I told you guys to look yeah, out for oh, us. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. But, right.
1: the, but the reality is that stuff went way back to the 70s. And, right. You know, we saw it, it was already there, like talking about it, but people just, I mean, when gasoline prices in the 70s. Right. They, in the early 70s, at one point they went with OPEC and they went out of whack. Right. We're crazy, we had lines at the gas stations. Right. But once that crisis stopped, Right. We went right back to the gas cosmos. Exactly. So, you know, human beings are not necessarily um, to be trusted with the future of the planet.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's a sad. <laughs> it is. Well, let me recap a couple of things that okay. Mike, Mike shared with us, I think, that are really good guys. Because, again, I like, again, actionable insight. So, so one, uh, on a social justice piece, I, I like what Mike said around staying informed and looking out for the biases. Right. So everyone has the opportunity to gather information but be conscious of the bias. So you can get all the kind of information you want, but he made the point of looking at the preface of books. And mm-hmm. you can do that even with channels. Even the channels you go to, Oh yeah. look at who owns the channel. You can, trust me, you can get some insight yeah. in terms of the, the view they have, and that way you can discount and understand where they're coming from so you understand how the information may mm-hmm. be slightly turned, if you will, right. right relative to the bias. Um, two, we talked about education, the importance of education. Uh, Three, we talked about um, some of Mike's uh, entrepreneurial escapades and that he advised his younger self to appreciate what was there and and take hold of it and and use it. Um, Four, uh, I think the advice of uh, in the business or on the business is really key. I had somebody give me that advice uh, during my time at Allstate. I had a good person who was on my team give me that same advice. You know, there's a big difference between working in the business or on the business. Uh, and then, last but not least, uh, understanding business models, and I think the last piece of advice of keeping that overhead low uh, as low as you can, <clears throat> especially if you're in a startup, so you have yeah. to, yeah, yeah. yeah. until yeah. you very, really have yeah. to. Uh, is
1: yeah. key. I, I actually got that from a buddy of mine who we painted. Um, we painted houses, and then we we used to live in Boston, and we uh, we found a niche for ourselves. And we were kids; we were like 19, 20, 21. But we used to do in, in Boston. There were these old three-story buildings. And they were all wooden clapboard buildings and they had wooden gutters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're built, they were all built around 1915, 1920, 25. And by the 70s, when we were doing it, all those gutters were rotten. Mm-hmm. So we invested in a swing stage right. and um, and ladder jacks and stuff, and we would go up there with crowbars and take out these old big wooden ones, and seamless aluminum had just come in. Mm-hmm. So we would have the seamless aluminum truck show up, cut them out there, and we could knock these things out. And, And and we made a lot of money, but it was just trading our time for money. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. Now, so you're trading your time for money. And when I, you know, when I understood that and everything, I always then began to look for, and that's why I got it. I went into business ownership because now you're looking at profits. Right. You know, and then, you know, in the network marketing industry, it's a very interesting industry because you can maximize your profits with never raising your overhead. Right. My overhead never goes up. Right. You know? You know so
0: it's yeah. interesting factor. a lot of leverage
1: yeah, a lot of, a lot leverage. of leverage. and leverage is a key, I mean like in you know that way, mm-hmm. but um you know we we live in we we, we truly live in in fascinating and interesting mm-hmm. times absolutely, but I really do think like the social justice component of changing this is a very, very important thing for us as a society, because we're wasting so much resource yes. in in, the, in a form of people yes you know and and it's like and it's so sad, I mean it's really sad because yeah. you know. You know, human beings are human
0: beings. Yes. And, all, you know, and
1: we, we deserve and we owe it to each other to give each, every, each of us the best opportunity we can.
0: Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Well, I love to always, uh trying to get better ending each program with this question. Who do you know that we should know?
1: Well, I told you about my former wife, Judy. That's Judy, right. Her name That's is right. Judy Tate. Judy, um, among other things, Judy runs a, um, the American Slavery Project. Yes. And what she's done is... Um, She's done a lot. Here's an interesting story. We used to live downtown Manhattan when, we, when she and I were together in the early 90s. We lived in Tribeca. And in the summertime, at nighttime, I would go out and ride my bicycle because downtown, especially we're not that far from Wall Street and City mm-hmm. Hall, the streets would be vacant. So mm-hmm. I could ride and get a good bike ride in. And one day I'm riding my bike. It's about 1130 at night. And I come across, all these lights are up. And I come and I stop to see what's happening. And it was a building site. They were building a, they were building, a building. And... um. Of all the people who were there, I see Lawrence Fishburne, mm. the actor. Uh-huh. And so I, I go over and, I listen and, and I'm listening closely, and I'm listening to find out what's going on. And it turns out as they were excavating, they started turning up a bunch of bones. Mm. And it had turned out it was an um, African-American burial ground mm. back in the 1600s and 1700s mm. in this one area. And there were all these – there weren't like hundreds, hundreds of people buried there, but there were 100 people or so right. buried there. right. And I didn't know this was a big interest to her. She's from the south side of Chicago. And I wrote home. I said, you got you to gotta come over and see what's going on right. here. And so this is back in the early 90s. That same project, it turned out that that's now a national monument hmm. or a national place of heritage. But she wound up doing a project because she's an actor and a writer. She wound up contracting, a, uh, getting a bunch of other writers to as they put as they put these um people together and they established whose bones belonged to, belong to whose because right. they weren't in in individual graves or anything. She had writers write the story of the different people and then she had actors deliver their story. Now it was all fictional but it was fictional based on hmm. on on the that's not so she so she's done that and she's also worked in the prison. She's worked in Rikers and she does that that work there. So I think she's she's a person whose story needs to be amplified. And um and who else? I mean we, we I mean you know a lot of the same people I know right here with with Darnell and uh you mean know, like I believe that um like I, I came into this business around the same same time Darnell self did. Mm-hmm. And I watched um at one point i watched what darnell did and 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 really he did he did something that was very really fascinating is he went to every every major city on the east coast originally mm-hmm. detroit you know philadelphia uh new york baltimore atlanta and he went into the african-american communities and he and he identified young young folks mm-hmm. who, were, who had leadership abilities mm-hmm. and he started building his team his organization around them and you know built one of the most spectacular one of the biggest uh, organizations, teams that we have inside our company. Mm-hmm. But he did it, you know, he did it consciously. Right. It was like, it was like he, he was thinking about it. But right. That's what I was watching him do it. Right. I said, that's brilliant, you know? Right. I mean, so I I mean, I could only piggyback on it by showing up at his events and stuff, right. but it was but a brilliant, so, you know, mm. but you probably have him on your list already. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, who else would I like, who, who I might know? I mean, my buddy, Jerry, who runs my old natural food business, He's got a pretty interesting perspective cuz he's been in the natural food industry for over 40 years now mm-hmm. and he's um and they're they're independent he, he's like he's an independent so he's you know that he's not part of the bigger the bigger operations mm-hmm. like Whole Foods and stuff but he's independent and he helped organize um a, an organization that's sort of a trade organization mm-hmm. for independent natural food store owners around the US um you know, great. But I mean, I think for so long I've been involved in this company that almost mm-hmm. everybody I know, you know. It's, it's,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'll take the the, the, the uh, your former uh, ex, uh, wife. That that would be great.
1: Yeah, I'll put you in touch with. I'll I'll, nice. I'll text you her information. Thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: That's, you so much for taking the time.
1: My pleasure. Really, my pleasure. So much. Thanks for asking me. Oh yeah, this is awesome.
0: Thank you for linking up with me for another episode of The Cooling Solution. You are informed and empowered and now can be accountable. A few takeaways for me from this episode. Number 1. Mike drew a distinction around a consumer-driven versus a citizen-driven society. In the former, he characterized it as a majority of people watching what was taking shape, and in the latter with citizens actively being involved in the shaping of our society. I'm encouraged by Mike to be a more active citizen. I hope you are as well. Number two, we discussed the importance of understanding that we all have biases. That's a reality. What I enjoyed was Mike's awareness and the action he takes to overcome them. He shared an example of taking in information from news channels or any media for that point and recalling that bias they have, and for lack of better terms, normalizing that to digest the substance of the information. Great advice. And then number three, Mike shared some of his entrepreneurial journey. One of the lessons he shared was the importance of working on your business versus working in your business. certainly when you start, you'll have to be in it, but you need to transition to working on your business, the systems, the processes, etc. So those are my three main takeaways, but I'm sure you have others. Share them with me. Further, if you find the podcast to be of value, please subscribe, rate and review it. As you listen to these podcasts, again, you're going to have questions and hear some things that are new to you, terminology you may not have heard before and hearing for the first time, and those are good things I'm here to serve. Go to our website, www.thecorrelingsolution.com, and right below the show notes, you'll see a comment section. Ask your questions, mention challenges you face in the areas that we cover, and tell me what other guests you'd love to hear from. Alternatively, you can do those through our social channels on Facebook, Instagrams, or Twitter. Thank Thank you again for linking up and see you next episode. Be informed, be empowered, be accountable.